Speed up with podcast speed up. Conversations with Tyler is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, bridging the gap between academic ideas and real-world problems. Learn more at mercatus.org. And for more conversations, including videos, transcripts, and upcoming dates, visit conversationswithtyler.com. We are here today with Charles C. Mann. Charles is renowned for many things. He has won writing awards. He's written for just about every magazine I've ever heard of. His books 1491 and 1493 are both bestsellers and personal favorites of mine. He is a Tlamatini, which in Nahuatl means he who knows things. You could say he is a thinker teacher who is writing wisdom. And just about now, he has a new book out called The Wizard and the Prophet. Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. And this is a book about how to think about the environment. It's a book about American history. It's a book about biodiversity. It's a history of the environmental movement, a book about pollution. Like all of Charles's works, it's anthropology and history and economics and all social science rolled into one and fun and exciting and dynamic. And now we have today Charles with us. Charles, thank you for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd like to start with some questions about air pollution. Since the environment naturally is a topic of so many of your books, Uh, The World Health Organization estimates that each year, six to seven million people die from air pollution. And yet we in the United States, we we hardly ever hear about this. Is this actually one of the world's biggest environmental problems? And if so, why is it so neglected? Well, it's not a big problem here. I mean, we've done enormous things to improve the environment in North America and in Europe. What they're really talking about is mostly indoor cooking smoke in places like South Asia and in China, as well as urban places in Asia that have just absolutely horrific levels of smog from coal. But it's So this is one of those areas in which you have enormous impacts in one part of the world and relatively little in another part of the world. And Obviously, getting rid of indoor cooking, especially on biofuels and coal, especially for home heating, would be a great idea for human health over in those areas. And in your book, Environmental Optimism versus Environmental Pessimism is a recurring theme. On this issue of the millions of deaths from air pollution, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Oh, I think I'm an optimist on this. This one is a problem that we have a clear idea how to resolve. There are obvious substitutes that would be much better than the kind of kerosene that you see in Indian villages. So I, I think this is a, a totally lickable problem. There are other ones that I'm much more worried about. The Kuznets curve, it states a relationship between per capita income and how willing a country is to actually fight pollution. Do you think the Kuznets curve is being rejiggered? So if you look at the history of the United States, we're really pretty wealthy until we start tackling our air pollution problems in the 1960s. Is China going to beat our pace or are they going to lag behind? Are we getting better or worse at fighting generalized air pollution? Well, we've already licked most of that problem. Not all of it by any means. Now it's concentrated in in certain areas. But Africa, Vietnam, China, yeah, yeah, India, yeah. Iran, and what's they pollute remarkable, a lot. Yeah, oh, they remove an incredible amount. What's remarkable is that if China follows through on what it says it's going to do, they're going to beat us all hollow. I mean, China is way poorer than we are, and they are taking some pretty draconian measures against, against air pollution if they actually do it. I'm skeptical that they're going to close down as many coal plants, for example, as they say they're going to close down. I'm skeptical that they're going to build all those green walls of trees that they say they're going to build. I've seen them, and there's a big difference between what is proposed at the top and what actually happens at the bottom. How much is, I could be wrong. They could be great. How much is China's installed coal base a problem preventing them from licking most of their air pollution issues? Oh, a huge problem. I mean, they have you know other issues as well, but this is the kind of thing like you, you take the big one first then the easy one first, and that would be coal. Although in China's case, to be fair, it's not so easy. Most of those coal plants are brand new, so you're essentially asking them to trash an infrastructure they've just built and replace it, and that's a big problem. This, for me, is one of the reasons that uh, I'm 
kind of upset about environmentalists in our country arguing against the idea of carbon capture and storage, which is the leading proposal for what to do with uh, coal plants like the ones in, in, in China. It might make sense for us to just say, stop using coal altogether. But I think that's a much harder call in India and China and uh, other parts of, of, of Southeast Asia. And carbon capture seems to be the only technology that's available possibly to de- deal with it without requiring India and China to trash an infrastructure they've just built. And what's the main barrier toward carbon capture and sequestration working? It's super expensive. And give, us a, give us an example of what it would well, cost. Well, supposedly, okay, what you're doing in carbon capture and sequestration for like a coal plant is you're taking all the, the gases that are emitted from it and you're combining it with a toxic chemical, big silo full of it called MEA, and then you're boiling it. And in the process, it combines with the carbon dioxide. And then you um, – I actually said that wrong. You cool it. It combines the carbon dioxide and you boil it and it releases the carbon dioxide. And you set up a cycle. It, the, the costs of this are what they call parasitic costs, meaning that it takes a certain amount of the energy produced by your power plant just to run the cleaning apparatus. And typical estimates are 30 to 50 percent. And then on top of that, you're basically boiling a giant silo full of super toxic chemicals all the time. And there's all kinds of novel metallurgy that's required. There's a bunch of technical uh, development that's required. This is an area basically that the coal companies have been saying that they've been developing for decades. You know, clean coal, clean coal. You can find advertisements back for that from the 1950s. They've done practically no work. And as a result, there's a huge technological catch-up to be done. And on carbon issues overall, are you an optimist or a pessimist and why? Well, I guess I'd say, you know, if you think about it, in 1800, look at the situation of the world, you know, we're vastly poorer. A huge portion of the Earth's population is um, enslaved in one way or another. There's actually estimates from people like Adam um, Huckshield that it's three-quarters of the Earth's population. I think that seems high, but you get some sort of the general idea. Women aren't allowed to own property, I think, anywhere. They aren't allowed to go to college. You know, you name it. And our world is totally transformed in the last 200 years. Slavery was one of the foundational institutions of you know, of civilization. And so to me, it would just be incredibly disappointing. Carbon in the air seems by comparison to slavery, a much easier challenge, although it's not to say a small one. And what do you think the solution will look like? Well, I think there's multiple possible solutions. And that's, in fact, what the uh, argument to the book is. There's different ways to go about it. And it really depends on what kind of future you want to have. If you're what I call a wizard, uh, maybe I should call him a, you know, to be more exact, something like a, what would it be, a, a Schumpeterian uh, meliorist or something like technophiliac meliorist right. or something. So I call them wizards. You want to have big, centralized, super efficient facilities. And that t- typically translates into nuclear power. If you're, you know, a, a prophet, uh, the typical environment movement, you don't like these giant central facilities in and of themselves, and you want smaller, much more networked systems. And that looks like a complete reconstruction of the, um, of the grid to use, um, to use solar and, and, and wind, and as well as uh, lots and lots and lots of planting. And both of them, you know, from the point of view of today's technology are equally impossible. So, you know, we can, we, it's a leap in the dark no matter what we do, but then that's the human condition, isn't it? Say I make an argument that you yourself have considered in print. As some parts of the world lower their demand for fossil fuels, the prices of those fossil fuels will fall. And there'll always be someone who's going to burn it, whether it's Vietnam or Africa or Brazil. And essentially, we're going to burn through everything we have at some price. And the flow of that into the atmosphere will continue more or less unabated, true or false. Well, that's a, I think that's an excellent argument, and um, I'm proud to have made it. Um, <laughs> so let me consider why, why this man guy might be totally wrong. Okay. Um, one is that uh, there seems to be a growing sort of popular conception of carbon dioxide as pollution, which it isn't, obviously, in the same way as sulfur dioxide right. and the other stuff. And so one of the things that's fascinating to me is that it, when, you, when you talk to people in China about cleaning up, 
they regard cleaning up the particulates in the aerosols and and carbon pretty much in the same breath. If people are going to sort of make that mental category, then then this man guy might have been gotten it all wrong, <laughs> and uh, and we we won't just see scrubbers uh, doing this. And the second thing is that there seems to be a kind of way that a respect for um, international community and international agencies that, frankly, surprises the hell out of me. Yes, our um, current president is obviously an ex- a counterexample against that. But people seem to be interested in, in kinds of collective action that I would not have guessed, both on the international front, which I think is very weak, um, but still there, and on the regional front. And personally, I would see the evidence of cities taking a lead in this, regions taking lead in this, and then, you know, to some extent, individual um, households. So this there's a whole institutional framework that seems to be swinging into effect to counter this sort of Jevons-type paradox that you were, you were talking about, you know, where people – things get cheaper and people use more of it. Right. And uh, – so I don't know. I, I, I made that argument. I still think it's a strong argument, but maybe I'm wrong. And are you a geoengineering optimist, given uncertainty, it may be hard to experiment with, and also the notion that countries may not agree. So we might want to do one kind of geoengineering, but Russia will have other ideas because it's a colder country. Can that work? I think you've, you've hit on the, to me, the big issue. I think that social issues in almost all these cases are much harder to solve than the technical issues. You know, geoengineering as a science in its total infancy, and there's no, right now the leading technology is solar radian, radiation management, as they call it, SRM, which basically, you know, means sprinkling shiny, little tiny, shiny particles into the air and reflecting back the uh, sunlight. But there's lots of other kinds uh, that are at least potentially possible. And so I, it's difficult for me to believe that all of them will fail to, pr- you know, to prove. I'm not sure about the um, institutional frameworks because there is the problem of the green finger, as it's called, which is that geoengineering is sufficiently cheap because all you need is a bunch of airplanes that, you know, an eccentric rich person. It may be too cheap. Yeah, it may yeah. be too cheap, right. Weitzman and Wagner, the two very good economists, um, have written a book about that, uh, which they call the free driver problem, uh, as opposed to the free rider problem, that it's so cheap that people would just take the wheel and go. Right. And so, you know, if you imagine if you're Indonesia and you're threatened by rising seas and uh, and so forth, Indonesia has about 70 billionaires in it, each one of which could, each one of whom could, um, could actually set a course of geoengineering on his own. So you add that, that's at the bottom, and then you add at the top the difficulty of international coordination. I think that's a very, that's the tough problem as opposed to the technical problem. The environment and water. Do you think there are water problems that can't be solved simply by having higher prices when needed, better defined property rights when needed, and also some kind of regulation when needed? Or is water something we absolutely can do, we just need the will to do it? I would say this is, again, complicated by people's ideas about water. What you're saying is totally standard economic good sense, right? Yes. Right. And it is absolutely true that people waste staggering amounts of water. And this is the kind of thing that uh, people who study water, like Peter Gleick and the Pacific Institute, they tear their hairs out about, you know, all the different ways that we waste water. 70% of the world's water or something like that goes to agriculture. Most of that is for irrigation and, you know, estimates the amount of water that's lost and just totally wasted in irrigation, um, you know, range up to 70% of that. So it's 70% of 70%, you're getting close to half the world's water just wasted. So they say, all the things that you should do, which you were just talking about, which is charge people, you know, act intelligent about this. Opposing this is the fact that people are not rational about water and uh, have never been 
as, as far as I can tell. When people feel water is threatened, they want more. And so then the, their, their view is to, you know, to do these giant mega projects like, uh, Israel, for example, has just built these huge desalination plants all over the Mediterranean coast. They have five big ones and they plan to build, uh, three more. There's another one that's going to be in Aqaba in Jordan. That's it's even larger. California has 20 of these planned. And then there's these mega, uh, projects, which I think from a strictly economic cost benefit or benefit cost point of view are kind of crazy given the, the wastage, but there's a real pull towards doing that. And I just don't know how it's going to come out. Isn't Israel a good example of why we should be optimistic? Yeah. So now Israel has 70 times the GDP they had in 1948, 10 times the number of people, half the rainfall, and they do water reclamation, desalination, drip irrigation. They have regulation when needed. I'm not saying they have no water problems, but it's pretty well off as a nation. Water is not what's holding them back. They do some wasteful things that may be for national security reasons. And doesn't Israel show it can be done? The whole world will, when it needs to, solve its water problems or no? Well, Israel is certainly an example of what you can do. Um, one of the striking things is they've um, oscillated between these two sides, what I, I call the wizards and the, and, the, and the prophets. I mean, they began by constructing these enormous water projects, um, the, the National Water Project, which is this huge canal that takes water from the north, which has relatively, um, you know, which is relatively plentiful water and channels it down to Negev Desert. Then they realized, oh, my gosh. We're getting in tremendous trouble with our neighbors because that water, you know, was supposed to be for the Jordan River and we've, you know, taken 70 percent of the water of the Jordan River. So now we have to do this conservation program. And this is exactly what you're talking about. The water reclamation is very innovative. Drip irrigation, basically an Israeli te um, technology. I mean, it was invented. Desalination, also basically an Israeli technology. And both of them were invented, you know, the fundamentals elsewhere. And Israel took them and developed them and kind of like they're kind of like the Japan of water. And they have done this extraordinary thing. But as soon as desalination kicked in at the beginning of this century, all those little tags that you, that you used to see about, you know, every drop counts, they're all gone. And only in the South now do you, do, do, do you see them. And the water, I just came back from there a few months ago and the water guys that I was talking to were sort of tearing their hair out in the way the water guys always are. The idea of privatizing water companies, in your view, is this an underrated or an overrated idea? I think it's a it's it's simultaneously both because it's a solution I think should be on the table in many more places than it is because the fact is that governments at every level have failed with water systems and almost anything would be better than that. The problem is that the private companies do make the investments and they have to get paid back. Yes. And the governments then don't pay them back. The individual customers do and that's frequently really tough on them. You know, I think this is a real case where where you you could make you, you could make an argument that government failures over time require government subsidies to to make up for them. Because you talk to these people in China who are paying a quarter to a third of their income for water. That's mm -hmm. quite tough. That's, that's a lot. And that's obviously something that they, you know, is, is a big punch in the face in, in terms of what they're, what they're trying to do. And you're going to get that and you, you, get, you get rebellion. And you don't want to have people revolting against their own water supply. So I, I think that you should be done more and the government should pay more attention. Let's consider a common interest. We both have food and food in the environment. Yeah. Now, as you well know, global population has continued to rise. But for the most part, at least relative to expectations, we fed many more people than most commentators ever expected was possible. Can this simply continue forever? Or is there some fixed factor in the system where you can't just keep on increasing your population and your food supply and every year feed a higher and higher share of the global population? Well, that's the question, right? Yes, but yeah. what's your view? And okay. if there's a fixed factor, what exactly is the well, fixed factor? Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, on some level, obviously the Earth is finite. And so on sure. some level, Georgus there is... Georgus Gerogan, yes. Right, what? 
Gyrgyz Gurogan makes this point. So clearly there is some limit somewhere. But where it is, we just don't really have a a clue. And one of the arguments I actually point out in this book is that there's this idea right at the beginning of the environmental movement, which is making this argument that that we can't do everything we want, is that there's carrying capacity. And it has a whole bunch of different names, ecological limits, planetary boundaries, gets dressed up in different uh, guises. But the whole idea is that there's these fixed points that we cannot Right. Surpass. And yet, when you look at it, the argument, however intuitively appealing, and it's enormously intuitively appealing because the earth is round and it's finite, is very, very difficult to substantiate. And you could, because it depends on what you consider those limiting factors to be. And in fact, uh, one of the earliest calculations of this was done by the great physicist and mathematician Warren Weaver. And he said, well, the usable energy is you know, what we need. And there's just an inordinate amount of energy coming in from the sun. Every day. Every day, all, you know, 24-7. And so if that's what your idea is, this is a ridiculous thing to worry about because people will not want to live in a world of hundreds of billions of people that's just too crowded to move. And this is the wrong thing to consider, the, the, the limiting factor. Other people say, that's crazy. We um, need to have these ecosystems. And yet all of these concepts, because they're ecology, they're very difficult. Ecology and macroeconomics are sort of the same thing. They're studying these huge systems with a zillion moving parts, none of which we understand very partisan well. Partisan and poorly understood. Also. Right, right. And they're partisan and poorly understood. And there's something there, obviously. Just this, you know, the economy exists. There's obviously, there is a something for macroeconomics to study, but we don't really have very good tools to do it. And they're also afflicted with models that are adhered to far more often than they are t- um, in terms of people's belief far more often than they are actually empirically tested. But what's the, if you had to pick a leading candidate to be the fixed factor? I'm not saying you have to endorse it, but what's the most likely fixed factor if there is one? Well, water is certainly a big candidate. There just really isn't that much fresh water. That was but we a big... can price it more. And since we have growing wealth, global economy grows at 4% yeah, yeah. a year, well, we right. can subsidize Well, you asked me what subsidies. was the candidate. I didn't okay. say I was believing yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> right. But water is obviously one of them. But the, hovering over it is these questions about whether these natural cycles, you know, is, is a kind of a fundamental question about uh, life itself. And so, is an ecosystem an actual system with an integrity of its own, with r- rules of its own that you violate at your peril, and which is the sort of fundamental premise of the environmental movement? Or is an ecosystem more like an apartment building in which there's just a bunch of people who happen to live in the same space and share a few common necessities? And I don't think ecology really has settled on this. And there's a guy in uh, Florida, Dan Simberloff, who's a wonderful ecologist who's kind of made a career out of destroying all of these models of these elegant models one after another. So that's the fundamental guess. If it turns out that it's just a collection of factors that we can shift around at Earth, that nature's purely instrumental and we can do with what we want, then we have a lot more breathing room. If it turns out that there's these these overarching cycles, which seems to be the intuition of the ecologists who study this, then we have less room than we think. David R. Montgomery wrote, and I quote, The United States Department of Agriculture estimates it takes 500 years to produce an inch of topsoil. Is that a plausible candidate for the fixed factor, topsoil? I don't think so. Topsoil is really important. And nations that screw up their soil, that's a bad thing that happens. And when I went to the Fertile Crescent a couple of times, and you see these, you know, soils that used to be part of the Fertile Crescent or and were Haiti, irrigated yes. or in Haiti or something like that, you walk across the border between the Dominican... So obviously... 
That is something you should really pay, pay attention to. But the tools we have for measuring it are pretty poor. For instance, the, the soil people have this thing called the universal soil loss equation. Do you, you know about this? No. Oh, this is how they measure how much erosion it is. And so when you hear that there's you know, one-third of the farmland in the Middle West or whatever the figure is has been eroded, it's with the universal soil loss equa- equation. And, it, and it's the best thing that people can do at the time, but it really measures soil movement. And an awful lot of erosion is when soil goes from one place to another. You know, if, if, if we're next door neighbors and some of my soil blows onto your farm and your farm blows onto my farm, they're both counted as eroded, even though we may actually have the same amount of, <laughs> of topsoil. And that, that's not because people are, are faking it or anything. It was just the best tool that was available in the 1950s. And, of course, people like to have consistent tools, and so it, it's gone through it. That said, there are estimates from people in Wageningen, where that great Dutch university, great Dutch agricultural university that's sort of behind the Dutch agricultural And they believe that the actual issue is more soil contamination. And um, they say that something like a third of the world's arable land is has some problems from contamination. As in China. And yeah, soil and contamination is harder to fix than air oh pollution. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's a big deal. And you don't want soil contamination. Right. And so that's a, you know, in that case, it's a plausible um, limiting factor, particularly if we are don't develop remediation techniques. And so I'm very interested. Here's an underrated one uh, okay. thing for you, which is phytoremediation. You know, if you could really develop that technique and you could plant some crops that would suck out the aluminum or, or the salt or whatever it is that's uh, your problem with your soil, that would be pretty neat. The general question, at what point can we say the pessimist views are wrong? So as you know, Malthus is writing about subsistence wages and even starvation in the 1790s. There are pessimists well before Malthus. Paul Ehrlich is writing The Population Bomb. Those predictions haven't panned out. So there have been centuries, century after century, where war aside, siege of Leningrad aside, the optimists essentially are correct. Most of the time, the relative price of food is falling. Labor employed in agriculture as a percentage of the workforce is declining. So what would have to happen for us to say, well, we simply decided the pessimists are wrong. We can keep on doing this. I don't think the pessimists, you know, if you take the argument, the pessimists are saying there's a finite world. We can only get so much from it. Right. That obviously is true. The question is not so much whether they're wrong as whether they're relevant. If the limit is so far out there that we don't even need to bother with it, you know, they're not – they could still be right. <laughs> it just wouldn't matter. And one of the ways of, I think of, of looking at it is supposedly in the, um, the next part of this century, we're going to – you know, all the demographers believe that the world population is going to roughly level off somewhere around the realm of, of 10 billion. Maybe it'll go – you know, the, the quote pessimists think it'll be 11 or 12. The optimists think it'll be nine. But basically, we're not going to get – the population is not going to double again. Nobody seems to to believe that. So if that's the case, and that stretches out as far as we can see, which is what they what they say, not that we can see that far, then if we can feed everybody and everybody's in pretty good comfort by you know, 2070 or whenever this point is, I think the optimists can declare victory, even though the pessimists could still be right in that there are limits. It's just They just aren't relevant. And when evaluating these issues, how much do you trust market price data? So you can look at the relative price of food, the price of potatoes, price of rice, and that's giving you some measure of what the market thinks will be happening in the future. Will there be forthcoming supplies? If there are not forthcoming supplies, people will buy them and hoard them or speculate. Do you trust market prices enough to infer judgments from them or do you dismiss that information? Well, it's, it's funny you should ask. I do trust market prices, I, but food is one of those areas in which the government tinkers so of much with, with this that I'm really not sure what to make of them. One of the the kind of eye-opening for me in this was I went to Illinois, Northwest Illinois, and I, I talked to a bunch of the farmers in Marengo, Illinois, which is a you know, corn and bean uh, place. And they described for me all the different 
programs that they are eligible for and, and, and participate in. And I now understand why economists complain about farm subsidies because they were saying these were reduced. And I couldn't believe the number of things that you can do if you're a farmer who produces the right commodity crops. And certain crops are very definitely much more in tune with what the government wants than others. So I talked to two farmers, both of Marengo, next door neighbors. And one guy is your sort of Michael Pollan ideal and uh, an amazing farm. He grows a thousand different varieties of, of crops, you know, just everything you could imagine, mimicking natural systems. He doesn't like to call himself organic because he doesn't like to submit to rules that he thinks are arbitrary and outdated, but we'll call him an organic with quotes because you get the idea. And it's really an amazing information processing system that he has to just this extraordinarily complex thing. And he produces a staggering amount of food off of it because he grows a lot of trees and tubers and trees and tubers are more inherently productive than um, cereals like uh, like wheat and uh, and barley and, and so forth. And he is eligible for nothing. You know, he has not gotten a dime from, from, from the government. He wouldn't mind it. It's not like a matter of principle, but it's just as far as the government is concerned, he doesn't exist. Whereas his next door neighbor has 1,200 acres of corn and, and wheat, and there's an entire parade of things that he is eligible for. So one guy's produce is much more expensive than, than the other guy's produce, but it's very hard to t for me as an outsider without conducting a serious study to, to, to tell. And then there's all these aspects of this, in which the system is tied together. Um, one of the things you always hear is that meat you know, every every pound of beef takes 10 pounds of grain and, and so forth. You've heard all this and sure. meat is terrible. And it's actually much more complicated than, than that because, you you know, you'd think that would give you some idea of price and so forth. But in fact, the grain that they're doing is, is uh, distiller's grain, which has already been used for a couple of other processes before it. It's used to make, you know, high fructose corn syrup and an alcohol and, 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 and so forth. So the costs of these things are all getting – disseminated around to all these different products that each have their own set of programs and their own set of incentives and so forth. So the market data from agriculture, while obviously very important, especially for individual people, is really tough to tell what it means. Are you saying beef is possibly environmentally cheaper than many of us believe? I have to, yes. Now, I should say, of course, it's all complicated. Yes. You know, right, right. But for example, I have I live in the country and there's a small farm just down the street from me. This is Western Massachusetts? Western Massachusetts. Okay. Sorry, I live in Western Massachusetts and we have a boutique farm next to us that us yuppies, you know, support because we like Jeremy and, uh, you know, it's all a, a, a sort of friendly but slightly ridiculous enterprise. And uh, he makes delicious – the the, the uh, beef and pork he has is absolutely delicious. So we pay a ludicrous amount of, uh, of, uh, for it. Any, any um, normal person would think we were idiots. But his stuff, his animals, they eat scraps. You know, they, they eat uh, they eat leftovers. Yes. And as far as I can tell, they and they graze. You know, on weeds. So as far as I can tell, the, the environmental cost to what they do is zero or or negative in the sense that they also you know have manure and the manure is then plowed back into the to, to the fields. So obviously. What he's doing is 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 having extremely small impact on the environment, possibly the methane. Now you get to these giant feedlots, and this is where they're talking about how terrible it all is. But that grain is used for so many things, and the cattle themselves are used for so many things. I mean, even if you didn't eat meat, there would still be need for leather. There would still be need for keratin from and uh, collagen and all the other things that come from from cattle. So when you take these things and just say, oh, 10 pounds of grain produces a pound of meat, it also produces all this other stuff, as does the grain. And so I think that the environmental impact is overstated. 
due in part- I'm sorry, that was a very long-winded uh, answer. Yeah. Great. Due in part to the influence of Rachel Carson, uh, the use of DDT has been highly restricted. And some people have charged this cost a fairly high number of human lives, and other people are more skeptical. What's your view? I'm skeptical of the these claims in, in, in the sense that, from what I have read, and I'm certainly not an expert on this, the implication seems to be that the, we're always talking about poorer nations that don't use it. Implications seem to be that these uh, nations would have mounted uh, the kind of systematic DDT spraying campaigns that were seen in this country in the you know from the First World War to about the fifties. Most of all in the South, yes. Most of all in the South, but also you know in places like Long Island and the Middle West. Sure. And the little I have seen in malarial countries and in you know places like Niger and Chad and uh, Nigeria and so forth, it just seems implausible to me that the government could have done this. So clearly, it had some impact on the margins, but I, I, don't, I don't know if we have a good idea of how much, how much it is. And I often think that the, that the sort of debate is more heat than light. Now, William Vogt is one of the two centerpieces of your book. One of his environmental solutions was population control and eugenics. Julian Huxley, who also plays a role in your mm-hmm. book, uh, brother of Aldous Huxley, he was a big advocate of eugenics. These ideas have faded from favor within the environmental movement, though not in China, of course, where they had a one-child policy. Do you think the future of environmentalism lies in population control at all or not? Population controls had such a terrible record because those ideas about population control were then embraced by the ecological elite, if you want to call it that, in North America and Europe, as well as governments in poor nations like uh, particularly India and, and China. And the result was just terrible abuses. But say China's one-child policy. Was it a, a major disaster or was it something... Well, the studies that I have seen suggest that if you look at the impact that it actually had on China, it was negligible. But if you look at the impact it had on individual families yes. who were forced to work, it was terrible. And so you had a, a policy where you caused maximum you know, social disruption and personal trauma that had relatively limited impact on population itself. And the reason that they they do this is they compare the sort of trajectory of China's population and birth rate with similar nations that didn't have this, and they aren't that different. And a lot of the TFR decline came before the one-child policy. Yes, Yes. exactly. TFR is total fertility rate. Yeah. And so, you know, it looks like if you take this evidence seriously, which I, I think you should, I think the demo- Chinese demographers are pretty good. It looks like this was just an awful mess and that they shouldn't have done it. And that, you know, it's just like this sort of boring thing they say, empowering women and educating women is actually <laughs> what you really want to do. My colleague Robin Hansen wonders if it isn't one of the world's biggest problems that will have too few children and too low a population. So countries such as Italy, I think now have TFR of about 1.3. Uh, for Singaporean Chinese, it's I think 1.1. So if you have enough countries... Not all of them wealthy, by the way. Iran, Algeria have rapidly falling uh, rates of childbirth. And you just have a shrinking population all the time. You have fiscal imbalances. You may have lower creativity. You may have a problem with aggregate demand. So you'll have bad macroeconomic outcomes. Do you worry too much that the global population will be too low and will be shrinking too rapidly? Your colleague is completely right that the population crashes that he's talking about are going to face societies of challenges they never faced before. I mean, always there's been what they call the population pyramid, which is, you know, a small number of older people and lots of younger people in theory to support them and certainly by their by their taxes. And what happens is the birth rate declines is that the pyramid turns into a cylinder or or something like that. And you have an age structure that's never really existed in human history before. And not only that, but there's all these old people like me who are hanging around <laughs> endlessly. And what we seem to really want to do is push down that retirement age so that the ever-shrinking number of younger people will have to su- do more and more to support us, if you go by the European example. So I, I do think that this is going to be a big 
problem. And the, the only upside I can see of this is that if all these people retire, maybe it will postpone the problems with the shrinking amount of work that's available if, if we all do this. Or maybe robots will yeah, be robots a savior. Will be a savior. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's all these science fiction stories from the 1950s where the robots are, are doing everything. I remember one that was called the Midas Touch or something like that, where, you, where people were having – there's so much productivity from the robots that people had to spend all their days energetically consuming stuff just to keep up. Now, in all of these conversations, we have a segment in the middle, overrated versus underrated. You're free to pass on any of my questions, but I'll oh, toss I'm, I'm sure I just don't think I have a particularly interesting <laughs> taste, but go ahead. Jackie Chan, overrated or underrated? Oh, I think it's impossible to overrate him. Jackie Chan's amazing. <laughs> have you ever s- seen those? Uh, you must have seen. I, I, I'm a big fan, obviously. And uh, My favorite is Drunken Master 2, which oh, on some reissues huge... is now just called Drunken Master. Right. But what's the best one in your view? Oh, God, they're all so, they're all so good. I, I would have said drunk, uh, Drunken uh, Master. Do you like Steve Chow? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So he's... He, Look, look, compare it. Jackie Chan has done, what, I don't know, 150 movies or something? A lot. Yeah. And an incredibly large number of them are good. Steve Chow has done about a third as many movies. He's much younger, of course. And what is his hit rate? 20? 20 out of the 50 or something like mm-hmm. that are good? Um, so, I mean, that's why I say it's impossible. The hit-to-miss ratio of Jackie Chan is unbelievable. Fake meat, overrated or underrated? I think it's overrated in the sense that it's often described as something that's basically around the corner. Although I have to say, I ate an Impossible Burger for the first time the other um, the other day, when, and uh, it was pretty good. If I had been served that burger at like a church social barbecue, and they, you know where they give you these mediocre burgers and so forth, I wouldn't have batted an eye. I would have thought it was a real one. You live in or near Amherst, so I have to ask you, Emily Dickinson, overrated or underrated? Oh wow, I think her re- reputation is pretty sky high. Probably then she is overrated, but I, you, you, but I, I feel like that's almost like saying that I don't like the Boston Red Sox. So, so sorry, I'll she could pass. be properly rated. <laughs> properly rated. Oh, okay, yeah, she's a good poet. Boy, Robert Frost, the other Amherst poet, is also a really good poet. He's, he, I think, he's uh, my t- my top favorite uh, American poet for the 20th century. If someone is approaching Robert Frost for the first time, what would be your pointer on how to make sense of it? The simpler the rhymes, this the more sing-songy it is, the more lethal the point. The city of Oaxaca, overrated or underrated? I'm a huge Oaxaca fan, so I don't think it's possible to over... I just love that town. Other than Oaxaca, what is the most underrated travel destination in the Americas that you would recommend, and how should someone go about approaching a trip to that place? Oh, wow. So you do have opinions on all of these matters. Well, I just don't think they're very interesting ones. Okay. Well, <laughs> they're I interesting say, to me, because okay. whatever you say, I'm going to go there, unless I've been already, <laughs> oh, no. oh, which no. is actually a pretty high probability. Okay. Well, it would probably be Brazil or Peru. Where in Brazil or Peru? Well, I'm a big fan of Sao Paulo. And uh, just this amazing city with incredible stuff in it. Some of the best Japanese food I've ever had. Yeah, and uh, Italian food. It's the best uh, Italian yeah, food yeah, outside of Italy. Really good food. Really good food. Also, the beaches are just outside the city are great. You have these fantastic uh, gardens by Roberto Burl Marx. I also really, really like, just because it's so interesting, it's not as beautiful, but I, I, I really like Manaus. It's just such an interesting place with this fascinating history. And it is, of course, the gateway to the Amazon. Um, so those would be two places in in Peru, gosh, there's so many different places in Peru. So let me pick the place you might not likely to be go immediately, which is Arequipa. Mm-hmm. But you should also go to, and you can go from there to the Coca Valley, which is just dazzling. I love the food in Arequipa. Oh boy, it's the oh, best spicy been there. food in Peru. Yeah, it's really good and it's beautiful. And this lovely whole city's rooftops. white stone. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite movie and why? But you can't mention Jackie Chan again. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite movie and why? Well, the thing about favorites right, is the ones that have these e- emotional impacts sure. on you, right? And um, what was it I was just thinking? I, I will tell you, this is sorry, as a 
college uh, freshman, I had a summer job working in a movie theater, and I saw the uh, movie Zardoz a hundred times because I was stationed in the theater to stop I love from Zardoz. In. And so <laughs> I think that movie is drilled into my brain, so I have to say Zardoz. I'm going to name three thinkers. You don't have to evaluate them overall, but just make some point that comes to mind when okay. you ponder their work. Jared Diamond. I think an interesting guy who really should learn more about social sciences. Economics in particular, theory yes. of common property resources. Yeah. He's too much of a pessimist about the history of Easter Island. Yes. I also feel like he's, he's I, I really admire his reach, you know, what he's, what, what he's trying for. I don't understand sometimes why it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, um, that he doesn't do his homework. For example, there is a bunch of French and Dutch archaeologists who went to Easter Island just as, as you said, one, oh my gosh, I've lost his name. He, he actually became, I think he was head of UNESCO for a while. Um, great French archaeologist. Anyway, he wrote three books about Easter Island. The UMass Library, which is uh, the one nearest me, which has like 10 books about Easter Island, about four of them, are, three or four of them are by him. So it's not an obscure source. Not a mention in that. And he was a key piece of it. He went to the Dutch archives and he pieced together. Basically, the, what happened to the islands is they were really small defenseless islands at a time when European traders were particularly rapacious. And the place got just swept away by slavery, um, disease, and also the trees got shut down, cut down for masts. James C. Scott and his theories of anarchism and governance and conquest. I think they're completely fascinating, really worth knowing, and I also think he pushes them too hard. Bjorn Lomborg and the Copenhagen Consensus. I'm not familiar. I just read The Skeptical Environmentalist. I'm not enough familiar enough with what he's doing now to, to say. He contacted me a bunch of stuff about that time. I thought what he was trying to do was, was valuable. I often think that people who do this tend to be the sort of person who you know, in the f knowing that they're going to arouse opposition, sometimes people who do this tend to like to pick a fight. And so I think he picked fights sometimes um, where they weren't needed. And, and not, not just in a political sense, but in the sense that he would very strongly take a position this way or that when the evidence wasn't that clear. You know, there, there's, um, I, I joke, I have a friend, Gary Taubes, who um, writes about diet and, yes, and so, and so forth. And I always say that there's a, there's weak Gary and strong Gary. And weak Gary is the idea that the evidence that carbohydrates, uh, you know, are the way to go for heart, heart disease is very poor. That's weak Gary. Strong Gary is that carbohydrates are actually bad. See, there's, there's a big distinction between these, these two. And I think that uh, Bjorn Lomberg didn't often grasp this in the skeptical environmentalist, which is the thing I'm familiar with, often would go beyond saying the evidence for this or that is weak to saying the evidence for its opposite. It must mean that the opposite is true. Now we turn our attention back to the history of the New World. Here's a question from a reader, and I quote, If Napoleon had not conquered France, leading to the Louisiana Purchase, would there have been no Indian Removal Act and no American Civil War? Is Napoleon, therefore, responsible for the collapse of the Native American civilizations? I think not, um, although your reader has obviously got um, an alt history book um, <laughs> right, right there in which that would be true. You know, disease emptied these um, areas in the 1780s. That there's a wonderful book by Elizabeth Fenn called Pox Americana, which is about this enormous smallpox epidemic. She also wrote a book about the Mandan that came out recently that talks about it as, as, as well. And so, you know, the native groups were just smashed by the disease. There seems to have been 40, maybe even 50% mortality rates. Very difficult for societies to uh, re recover from that. And I think that people would have just moved in. It is possible that Andrew Jackson didn't have to be such a jerk. I'm doing a, working now with a project with a 
Choctaw, and they, they who were in Oklahoma and used to be in Mississippi, and they certainly remembered. They allied with him in 1812 and were partially responsible for his great victories in 1812, which led him to the presidency. And so they feel like he directly and personally stabbed them in the back. In fact, when they said they're taking him off the $20 bill, there was great rejoicing in <laughs> Choctaw country. Now, as you well know, there's a huge literature on how Cortez and the Spaniards managed to conquer the Aztec Triple Alliance. Mm-hmm. For me, it's one of mankind's most remarkable but also tragic stories. But in the whole set of explanations, what do you think is the underrated factor in how so few people managed to take over such a mighty and in many ways highly advanced civilization? Well, it wasn't so few. You know, it was Cortez was what I think is the underrated factor is that Cortez was much less a military genius than he was a political genius. He was a, quite a remarkable politician, really deft. And what he did is there's a whole bunch of people. The, the Aztecs were an empire, right? The Triple Alliance, and they, they were not nice people. They were rough customers. And there was a lot of people whom they had subjugated and people whom they were warring on who really detested them. And Cortez was able to knit them together into an enormous army lead that army in there, have all these people do all that, and then hijack the result. I mean, this is an act of political genius, worthy of Napoleon. I mean, actually, Napoleon did sort of the same thing. He hijacked the French Revolution, put himself into power. (laughs) So he just, okay, Cortez is Napoleon. Here's a very general question I've wrestled with over the years. You know, if I travel to most parts of Asia, I actually feel really very safe, even late at night. When I travel in the New World, depends where I am, but very often I don't feel entirely safe. And if you look at murder rates, crime rates, it does seem on average many parts of the New World are quite a bit more violent than many parts of Asia. And what what theories or what categories do you apply to help explain why the New World has evolved to be relatively so violent? Not Canada, of course, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. How do you think about that? You know, I've I've often thought about that and speculated about it because we lived in Tokyo for a year and it's the largest city in the world, 32 million people, and there's no place in Tokyo. There's not a bad You can't find trouble. Right. And you could, I mean, one time I was riding on the train in in Tokyo at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, with a friend of mine who is from just from the United States, and he suddenly realized that we we had we had had a we'd gone to a sake bar and had quite a bit of sake. That we were riding on the subway at one o'clock, and we were both a little you know unsteady on our feet, and he he got alarmed right because this is something you wouldn't do in many places in the United States or certainly you know Mexico City or what have you, and. Then he looked around and he realized that every other person on the train was drunk too. <laughs> <laughs> and you could, you see these in like the Cherry Blossom Festival where everybody goes out to the parks and everybody in Tokyo is completely plowed at 11 o'clock in the morning and there's no fights. You know, there, there's hardly even any litter. It's, it's really remarkable. So I thought about why did the Japanese do this? And to some degree, it has to do with a level of social engineering, I, I think, that we are really uncomfortable with. If you get on the subways, you hear all the time these sort of chirpy female voices telling you something in Japanese. Yes. And when I lived there, learned enough Japanese to realize they're always saying, you know, hey, let's not talk on our phones. It's so rude. Or, you know, hey, don't do this. And it's, you know, those sort of admonishing nanny state yes. uh, type things that uh, we Americans find so irritating. They're just all over the place. And they also have a zillion cops who are you know, just everywhere. Tokyo has a huge police force. I mean, it's a huge city, but it has a much police great, box. Yeah, the, many the, corners, right? Every corner they they have one. One time, um, because we were idiots, we didn't understand how our new stove worked, and we caused a a fire uh, in our in our stove, and the police were there 
I swear, within a minute because the, the kiosks are always, you know, three blocks away, away from you. They ran over on foot and helped us put out the, the fire. So when you have that degree of being watched and that degree of social control, I think it has uh, some, some impact. Unfortunately, I think this is a disquieting answer for people like me who are Americans who don't like being supervised in this way. As you know, there are still many Nahuatl-speaking villages in Mexico, oh, other yeah. non-Spanish languages. Very often a village of this kind would have a thousand people, two thousand people. Say the Mexican government has you in to advise them, and maybe they have, and they say, we're looking to make some changes to improve well-being in those villages. What would you recommend? The big problem, I think, with Mexico is official corruption. It's just terrible. I think it's underreported, if in, in anything. It's just staggering, the the level of malfeasance and, and incompetence there. And just, you know, on every level, things that most governments wouldn't even think to loot have already been looted there. I remember I was shocked. You know, they have these uh, Conosupo and these systems for subsidizing corn, which they, they have in, in, in Mexico. And every small village has those little shelters where, you, you know, those little concrete dome structures where you're supposed to bring your corn in and then, you know, it gets packaged and sent off to the fa- factory. And it's a it's a kind of national, it's a, it's a remnant of the Ejido system. When I went down to Oaxaca and I was looking at, at, at these no, it's Chiapas, excuse me. All of them had been made with defective concrete. And, you know, somebody had made it, and they were all crumbling and falling apart, and the corn was being spoiled. And then you actually had to pay off the inspection. It was just, you know, the corruption just permeates the thing. So basically, I would tell the government that they should, I, I think if they fired pretty much everybody in the government and hired a new government, they would be better off. I mean, I'm joking, obviously, but <laughs> the Mexican people are just wonderful. You know, it's it's a cultural full of all these people who know how to do all this stuff. People, there's so many people in Mexico, in rural Mexico, who know how to wire their houses. They know how to do the plumbing. They know how to build with cement. You know, they, they come over to the United States and they're tremendously in demand all through the Southwest and California. And, you know, you see these neighborhoods that are former dumps where they're now middle-class neighborhoods where everything is built by the people themselves. There's no lack of knowledge or en- enterprise there. You have to feel like what's holding them back is the government. Where's the best food in Mexico? I'm just a Oaxaca fan, so Oaxaca. I would say, yeah. The city or surrounding countryside and villages? Well, they're, both, they're different. They're different. Boy, the city is the place where I've had the best food, but also you could, it's, it's, some of it's pretty touristy. And you, I you like get, the suburbs of yeah, Oaxaca the yeah. best. And I, and I think actually, yeah, j- actually the immediate suburbs. Yes, ring, exactly. Ring, yes, yes. That's where, okay. I was Oaxaca's a bit spoiled at this yeah, point. Yeah. How much early civilization was there in the Amazon basin, and why has this topic been neglected for so long? It appears there was much more than previously thought, and it was neglected for a variety of reasons. One was there is this longstanding belief that tropical forests simply couldn't sustain complex civilizations. And that began, you know, well in the 19th century with this whole idea that they're too hot and people can't do things in hot areas and they're too wet and, and uh, moved on with the idea that they don't have stone and then got it given an ecological gloss um, by largely by Betty Meggers and um, her, her late husband. And there is this whole idea that there, that the soil is too poor and that people are incapable of overcoming this limitation. And this is, a, and so consequently you could not developed the tropical forest. And this was then embraced by environmental groups who wanted to pre- preserve the tropical forest as a reason to do it, you know, that you're just going to wreck it. And so there was a tremendous prejudice a- against it. And it was only really in the um, 90s when mainly Brazilian archaeologists, but also some, some Americans started looking 
that they discovered every place that people have really seriously looked, they found much more than previously thought. And the work of Michael Heckenberger on the Shingu is the most famous one where he's found these sort of network cities that are very re- reminiscent. Do you know um, uh, Garden Cities of Tomorrow, that book? from Yes. Uh, yes. They're, they're quite reminiscent of those cities. In terms of complexity or living standards, what would you compare it to, say, from history? Do you have a broad sense? It's easy to live there. So in terms of living standards, they were doing great. I mean, the, the environment is incredibly rich. Sure. Um, you don't get that much meat, but you, so food and water is fantastic. That was not a given in, in, in lots of places. But in the terms of material technology, it's really unclear. They, they had no stone or metal. It just wasn't available. And so – you know, it, it's unclear how much you need stone or metal to have enduring technological um, ent- enterprises. You know, for instance, you can do a lot with rubber and these kind of things, but they vanish. So you, there's going to require – to really ascertain how much they had is going to require very sophisticated archaeological work. There's a wave of revisionist accounts suggesting that in some ways the invention of agriculture may have been, if not a mistake, at least bad for humanity for many, many centuries and that we've been underrating the lives of hunter-gatherers. This isn't any more a new argument, and there's much earlier versions, say, from Rousseau. But what's your take on the whole debate of agricultural existence versus hunter-gatherers relative to other people? Where do you stand on that question? I guess I'm agriculture is what allowed us to build up a surplus. A surplus is what allows people to specialize. It's good for us, right? Yeah, it's good clearly. for us. It's clearly good for us. <laughs> but the overall comparison, a society overall moves comparison. to agriculture 300 years later, is it better for them? Well, if you listen to James C. Scott, no, right? <laughs> yes. I think he under rates the potential for being awful outside of those um, state societies. Uh, I think that I suspect that each of them was awful in their own way. And yes, except um, you certainly had more freedom of action in those non-state societies. And that was particularly true. You'll notice in his book, um, Against the Grain, he carefully excludes tropical forests and other other environments. He's t- really talking about grain civilizations. And so the answer for them is, yeah, it was, it was tough. I don't think that the, that was true for, you know, tropical forests in Africa and Asia and, uh, and South America. And certainly they, they – and it may not even have been true in places like uh, Peru. You know, most archaeologists think that uh, it was plentiful there. There's so much fish uh, that uh, you really didn't – you know, you could be in a state and you really didn't have to work that hard. It's only when you get to the Inca and those kind of people that you start getting these sort of totalitarian enterprises. Now, a much earlier Charles C. Mann wrote a book, co-authored a book called The Aspirin Wars – and a reader writes to me the following question, quote, maybe simply ask him what pain reliever he uses and ask what he has to say about the FDA's delays in addressing known health risks of high doses of Tylenol combined with alcohol. You're free to pass, but if you would care to address this. I personally typically use, well, I take aspirin for my for my heart. I've been instructed to do this by my doctor. So, you know, I take a baby aspirin and we typically have ibuprofen around the house because my daughter takes it for um, the reasons that women especially take ibuprofen for period pain. And so I do that sort of by default. They all work pretty much the same for me. I think the FDA needs the, – the what's happening with the delay in that is that the the FDA – has lost any power other than to delay. And that's, uh, you know, there's a whole complex of reasons why some of the drugs and things that they're asked to um, regulate are enormously complicated. They're very, very short-staffed. They're under they're underfunded. They're under considerable political pressure. It's sort of a good idea that needs to be uh, shaken out and, and rethought, I think. And overall, how efficient are aspirin markets today? You know, I just don't know the answer to that question you now because it's been a while since I've looked at them. But in the 1990s, what was your argument? 
Well, there, you know, you're, you're dealing with sort of pure capitalism. You're dealing with products that for most people can't really d- d- distinguish them. And so that they're, um, they're kind of an exemplar of what, uh, of, of the power of marketing. I don't know if that counts as efficient or not. <laughs> That's a question I like to ask many of our guests. You don't work from inside the traditional academy. You don't have tenure. You don't have an overwhelmingly single academic specialization, but yet you're remarkably productive. Your works are in scholarly circles, very highly respected. Hardly anyone, if anyone, knows more about the history of the New World than you do, as illustrated in your books 1491 and 1493. The breadth and also depth of your knowledge of the environment and history of environmental movements in your new book, The Wizard and the Prophet, again, seems virtually without parallel. So I would ask, what is the Charles C. Mann production function? Like, how do you get this stuff done? What is it you know about being productive in your path? I'm not saying you would tell other people to do exactly what you did, but what's your insight into how you have become Charles C. Mann? What's your production <laughs> function? What's the secret? <laughs> well, I don't go to meetings. <laughs> Unfortunately, academia is replete with, with meetings. That's One correct. of the reasons for living in Amherst is that they don't request me to come in and, and talk to people. Uh, so there's a huge amount of sort of the overhead of, say, an academic job right. that I'm very lucky not to have to have to do. The other thing is that because I live near a university, I'm able to use the University of Massachusetts Library and the other, um, there's a bunch of colleges and universities around here. Good libraries are a wonderful thing and they're kind enough to let me use it even though I'm like a parasite. The second thing is the wonderful tradition of scholars in which if somebody with a plausible interest in what they're doing calls them up or writes to them, Nine times out of 10, they're very happy to talk to you about what they're interested in. I can't tell you how grateful I am to this tradition. You know, people will talk to me for hours. It gains them nothing. I mean, I, I, I try to make it pleasant for them, but frankly, they're, they're, it's sort of nuts, but they're, they're willing to do this. And then the second thing is that I am able to sit down and, and read a lot of stuff. And my, my secret weapon is that I can, that I can read. That you can um, read. You can read quickly, perhaps? I can read fairly quickly, and I'm not afraid of numbers. An awful lot of journalists aren't afforded the t- leisure to or time or whatever they're to, to read, and an even larger percentage of them are much more scared about numbers than they should be. And I was always raised by my father that if you stare at something long enough and ask enough questions, you can, uh, always, find, you can always figure out the gist of it. And how do you organize your workday then? I'm a night person. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever your work reason. night, however, your work. Yeah. And um, so I typically spend the morning dealing with correspondence and uh, the, the sort of overhead of the modern electronic era. And then I am able to work from, so say, one to five. Then I cook dinner for the family with my wife. And then I'll work late at night. And living in the countryside with few distractions has been very good for me. Just to recap, the subtitle of Charles C. Mann's book is Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. Those two scientists are Norman Borlaug and William Vogt, environmental optimists and pessimists, respectively. The title is The Wizard and the Prophet. I love this book. I encourage you all to read it. And I thank you, Charles, for coming and joining us today. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Tyler. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.